1: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I have back with me today Dr. Tom Metkus, who you may remember is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology here at Johns Hopkins and a good friend and colleague of mine. We were fellows together. We worked together in the cardiac SICU, and Tom is just a fantastic resource for all things learning around cardiology. And so I've asked him to come back, and we're going to talk about the perioperative guidelines for managing patients who have potentially have cardiac disease who are having non-cardiac surgery. So I think this will be really great. Tom, welcome back.
2: I'm thrilled to be here. Um, thanks for having me. And this is um, one of my favorite topics in clinical cardiology is the, the perioperative evaluation before non-cardiac surgery. i um, looking forward to the conversation.
1: Great, and I will mention that this episode is going to be featured, as some of them are, on anesthesiologynews.com, and regular listeners will know they do feature our episodes from time to time. You can check it out. Let me know if you've found the episode feature over there, and you'll also be able to check out a lot of their interesting content. They're an independent monthly newspaper. They've got lots of multimedia and web content. Check it out, anesthesiologynews.com, where you'll see this and some of our other ACRAC episodes featured. All right, so let's jump right in. So Tom, when we think about patients coming for non-cardiac surgery, one of the things we, we kind of worry most about as anesthesiologists is, is there anything going on with this patient's heart? Do they have any unknown cardiac issues? Because that could really affect my anesthetic and what happens in that operating room. So, what do we what are we worried about? When I say I have that worry, you tell me. When when us anesthesiologists worry about that, what what are we afraid might happen, and why do we think these patients need to be thought through a little harder?
2: Yeah. So this is an important topic, um, and it's a great question. So this, um, if you were to put a name on this topic, you might call it perioperative cardiac evaluation. Um, so cardiac evaluation around the time of we should be specific non cardiac surgery. Um, so people undergoing cabbage and valve disease, maybe I'll come back and we can talk about those guys another time. We're also going to say this doesn't necessarily apply to patients undergoing solid organ transplantation, um, liver, kidney. Um, Those patients have their own set of needs for cardiovascular evaluation before their transplant. And suffice to say that the ACC and AHA and our specialty societies, both in um, the United States and in Europe, have issued guidelines about this thing called the perioperative cardiovascular evaluation before non-cardiac surgery. Um, Colloquially known as cardiac clearance. Um, You'll sometimes see that term bandied about. But the basic idea, irrespective of what you call it, is you have a patient coming to you um, for an operation. Um, They're obviously going to get surgery. They're going to get an anesthetic. And the question that we all have is, what is the risk of something awful happening to this patient Um, when they undergo their proposed procedure with their proposed anesthetic plan. We should be specific, something awful when we talk about cardiac complications, we're talking about a perioperative MI, we're talking about perioperative heart failure or pulmonary edema, um, a cardiac arrest, or death. So those are the things we're gonna lump together as perioperative cardiac complications. So those are obviously bad things. You may have cared for patients who had those complications. Um, We want to avoid them if we can. And so the name of the game is to identify patients who are at risk of one of those awful things happening to them at the time of surgery. And if we have good treatments to prescribe to prevent those things from happening, um, by all means, we should. And so that's the name of the game when you're doing the perioperative cardiac evaluation or cardiac clearance. Great. Sorry, let me just ask you. So uh,
1: people may have heard the term MACE. Which is M-A-C-E, Major Adverse Cardiac Events. So those are those bad things, right? Exactly.
2: So so MACE, we say the composite. You want to avoid MACE, Major Adverse Cardiovascular, Sometimes Cardiovascular and Cerebral Events, MACE with two Cs. Um, And I think that's right. So we'll lump all those things together as MACE or cardiovascular complications. That's the appropriate terminology, I would say.
1: Great. All right. So those are the things we're trying to avoid, obviously, and the things we're worried our patients may have if we don't correctly identify their risk beforehand. So how common are these things?
2: So the good news um, is that um, you guys, as the anesthesia team, um, our surgical colleagues, as the surgeons, and, and also the patient's medical team, be it their primary care doc or their cardiologist or their um, kind of perioperative medical home team, um you guys are all really good at what you do. So it turns out that most preoperative evaluation is really looking for a needle in a haystack, isn't it? Because these events are pretty rare. Now, you know, there's certainly some aspect of recall bias, isn't there, that we all remember are sort of uh, worst cases or cases where things didn't go well, and we tend to forget the ones that went very smoothly. Um, But in truth, when you look at large databases, the risk of those preoperative cardiovascular events across all comers um, in surgery, is it's pretty rare. And so the correlator is that most surgery is actually pretty safe. Um, no doubt the, the, the kind of prevalence of the disease will vary depending on which database you look at and depending on what the baseline risk of the population is. But just to give you some ballpark figures, um, there was a, a paper um, that looked at the risk of cardiovascular events in different operations. And it, for patients undergoing Um, open repair of a triple A, ostensibly one of the highest risk vascular surgeries you can do, big fluid shifts, vasculopathic patients, um, PAD, CAD, the whole bit. Um, Even in the highest risk of those patients, the risk of a severe cardiac complication was about 10%. Now, that's high, no doubt. Um, That's the highest you have. But of course, that means that 90% of those patients do great. Um, And for sure, most of the things that people are having um, is not major vascular surgery, so most patients do pretty well, and that has a kind of subtle implication when we're talking about perioperative cardiovascular evaluation because it means that the the pretest probability of disease um, is usually pretty low because you guys are really good at what you do.
1: So that's tell us a little more about remind us the statistics there. Why does it matter that the pretest po- probability is low?
2: Right? So you want to have a sense of the pretest probability if you're thinking about a test to risk stratify the patient. So take as an example, if you think a patient comes to you before um, maybe a a colon resection, and you think the patient's at high cardiovascular risk, a lot of those patients will be referred for stress testing. What one should keep in mind is that um, if you're a Bayesian statistician or someone who applies Bayesian reasoning to clinical problems, the post-test Probability of disease is very much influenced by two things, isn't it? The pretest probability of disease and the test characteristics themselves. So if you have a low pretest probability of disease, even if you apply a test with very high sensitivity and specificity, your post-test probability of disease will still be low or at most moderate. It's hard to take someone who has a low pretest probability of disease. And get them to a high post test probability of a disease, even with an excellent test. And as we'll talk about, the tests that we're using to assess cardiovascular risk um, stress tests, stress echoes, nuclear scans um, they're not that great at predicting perioperative cardiovascular events. So, so, what you end up having is you have a disease, i.e., perioperative cardiovascular complication, that's not that common or at most moderately uncommon in the highest risk patients. And you have tests that we'll talk about that are not perfect in identifying who's gonna get into trouble or not. And so to sort of put it in day-to-day language, someone could have a negative stress test before an operation and still have a perioperative cardiovascular complication. Conversely, someone can have a flagrantly positive stress test and still get through fine. Now, I'm not gonna imply that stress tests are useless. They have a role in our, and we'll talk about our guidelines. Um, But it at least gives you the flavor that when we're doing this evaluation, it's not perfect, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's really important and also speaks to the importance of good management regardless of what the pre-op workup showed. Uh, You could have someone with a totally, quote-unquote, clean cardiac workup or was cleared with no issues and yet they could still have a perioperative cardiac event. So let's talk about the algorithm itself. So we have somebody coming for surgery. How do we approach that person to screen them or to decide if they need further testing?
2: Yeah, so this is a very common um, consult that I see in my cardiology life. Um, Certainly in the office, you know, my patients will come to me and say, Oh, I I have uh, hip surgery coming up, Uh, you know, I need a a wrist stratification or a clearance or whatever term you like to use. Um, Not uncommon in the inpatient setting as well. Um, Somebody needs an unexpected operation and, and we're called to see them. Um, And certainly, I would anticipate to be common uh, in the practice of most um, members of the anesthesia team, be it in the uh, perioperative clinic um, or certainly in your day-to-day practice when you're seeing patients' day of surgery. So I think it's important. Um, And I'll share with you the way I think about this. This is largely based on the guidelines that the ACC and the AHA have published Um, There are also European guidelines that are largely consistent with our American guidelines, Um, and all those are very readable documents, and I would say just tremendous resources um, to go to to get further reading about all these issues. So the first point is that, you know, I'm going to come see a patient before surgery and with the question to assess their cardiovascular risk. Um, You know, what tools do I have to assess that when I'm standing there? And these tools are actually the same tools that we use in all of clinical medicine. I'm going to take a history I'm going to examine the patient, I'm going to take an electrocardiogram, and that's really the starting point to inform the whole evaluation. Um, The other really important component of the perioperative evaluation is a discussion between the person doing the perioperative cardiovascular evaluation and both the anesthesiology team and the surgeon, because the anesthesia plan and the surgical plan really... um, can mitigate or exacerbate the perioperative risk. For example, uh, big difference between someone getting, um, say, a regional block uh, for a certain procedure versus a general anesthetic. Um, Similarly, on the surgical side, you know, big difference between maybe like an endoscopic resection of endoluminal mass um, versus a triple A, right? So all those things are really important. So, you know, if you're having a consultant come help you or you're doing this yourself, make sure you understand clearly the anesthetic plan and the surgical plan. Um, The other thing I think it's important to know if you're doing this evaluation, and in fact, the first question I'm going to ask myself when I see these patients is what's the urgency of surgery, right? And the guidelines will define emergent surgery as threatening life or threatening limb if surgery not performed within six hours, okay? Whereas urgent, six to 24 hours. So you're getting the sense that urgent and emergent surgeries are things that are going to threaten your life or limb within imminent time period, if not performed. Elective surgery could be deferred in definite time. This would be an example of like, um, uh, knee for osteoarthritis, that sort of thing. You know, osteoarthritis is a, is a bummer, but it's not going to threaten your life. It can wait if you need further testing. Right. And then there's a lot of surgery in between, right? Like most cancer surgery where it's time-sensitive but not urgent, right? You certainly don't want to wait a year to get your uh, colon mass resected, um, but it doesn't need to happen tomorrow. And so that's important to the consultant because if your life or limb is threatened, if you don't go to the OR, the risk of waiting for more cardiac testing, even if it can refine your risk to a tremendous degree... Is, is outweighed by the benefit of going to surgery, right? So in other words, there's nothing I can do as the cardiology consultant that's going to make surgery more or less appealing because your life or limb is threatened. So what I would generally say in those situations is go to the OR and I'll help you manage whatever happens, but the risk of waiting is more than the risk of going. So the first question I'm going to ask myself when I see these patients is, is the surgery urgent or emergent? If it is, go to the OR and we'll, we'll deal with the consequences, but we want to save this person's life and save this person's limb and not do further cardiac testing.
1: Right, I think that's really important. And on the anesthesiologist side, I think what we'll often say to a patient and or a family is, this surgery is necessary to save the life or the limb, However, it's important that you know there are very real risks here because of your heart disease or whatever it is, and so we want to make sure you understand, and most of the time people are going to say, if this is the chance to save my life, or the family will say if the patient can't save for themselves, then yes, go ahead, but you've then gotten informed consent because you've informed them about the risks, and so you do want to make sure that you approach it from that perspective, but as you said, most people are not going to say, well, I want to risk my life by not having the surgery, so I can have a stress test.
0: Yeah,
2: I think that's right. You know, the, just to bring it into a clinical vignette, you know, a patient say with um, unrevascularized coronary disease who comes in with a head bleed, right? You're obviously going to operate, evacuate the hematoma, and then you know, load the boat. The cardiologist can come help you, help you in the ICU, help you perioperatively to do what we need to do to get that patient through. But assuredly, you know, you can't wait to. to stent the patient or do other things, right? You you need to go. So first question, is it urgent or emergent? If it is, go to the OR. If it's not, we'll do more evaluation.
1: Right. Sounds great. All right. So that's the first question. Obviously, urgent or emergent, we're going to go almost always. Let's say it's not. Let's say it's not urgent or emergent. Great.
2: So I've come to see the patient. I've said, okay, there's not a life or limb-threatening condition here. Um, you know, I have some time. I'm going to take a history. I'm going to do a physical exam, and I'm going to do an electrocardiogram. And what I'm looking for is I'm going to ask myself, is there an unstable cardiac condition present that merits treatment before we go to the operating room? Remember, you've already ruled out the people who need to go urgently. We've already sent them. So these are patients who by default can wait, and I'm looking for unstable cardiac conditions. So what are the unstable cardiac conditions? Well, these are things like Flagrantly decompensated heart failure, right? So you see the patient, they've got Rawls, they've got pulmonary edema on the x ray, they need to be diureased, and obviously you would want to address the heart failure before you go to the operating room, okay? You're going to also, I'm going to examine the patient, I'm going to talk to them and ask them if they're having an unstable acute coronary syndrome, right? Unstable angina, or even an acute MI, right? So most people who have an acute MI, it's not subtle, but let's say the patient says, oh, Yeah, doc, you know, for years I've gotten a little bit of chest pain when I walk up the stairs. But you know what? This week I've been getting it like at rest and it doesn't like go away. That's a patient with unstable angina. So we might want to address that, evaluate it, and treat it before we send the patient to the operating room. So heart failure, angina. The other ones are um, uncontrolled arrhythmia, be it ventricular arrhythmia like VT, um, or uncontrolled rapid atrial fibrillation. So you want to address and treat arrhythmias arrhythmias, if they have unstable heart block or complete heart block, you obviously want to address that before surgery. And then the other class of unstable cardiac conditions is um, symptomatic severe heart valve disease. Um, mostly we mean stenotic valve disease, so symptomatic severe aortic stenosis, symptomatic severe mitral stenosis. Um, you want to identify and treat those things. That obviously has a lot of impact on the anesthetic plan and the, and the surgical plan. Those patients can get pretty sick with surgery. So the essence of the second series of questions I'm going to ask myself is I'm taking a history and a physical exam to look for unstable cardiac conditions. If, if we find those things, then we're going to identify and treat them As per guidelines. So just what the guidelines would say to address unstable angina or heart valve disease, you know, we'd get it addressed, and then we'd think about the non-urgent cardiac surgery.
1: Great. All right. So the first question was, is this urgent or emergent? We said no. The second question is, is there an unstable cardiac condition present? You just went through what those might be. If they are, we're going to treat them. If they are not present, then what's our next step?
2: So then we've sort of ruled out a bunch of really sick people, right? So that's good. So we're kind of moving on along. Um, The next question I like to ask myself is, what's the risk of the procedure? Um, And you might say, boy, that's a big jump, right, from patient-specific risks to procedural-specific risks. But the idea here is that if the procedure's low risk, there's not a lot that we can do as the perioperative care team to make it lower risk, right? So nothing's zero risk. But if something's already Really close to zero risk. It's hard to improve on that, right? So, what's an example of a low risk procedure? So, this would be most derm surgery, um, most kind of peripheral extremity surgery with like a regional block is pretty low perioperative risk. Um, most breast surgery because it is sort of derm surgery, right? You don't you don't enter the the thorax or any body cavity. Um, most endoscopy, although certainly if there's a possibility of converting the endoscopy to open, then I'd not count that as low risk. Um, and then most, um, most eye surgery, cataracts, things like that. Um, so those procedures are lowest procedures. The other way to define a lowest procedure is if the risk of a perioperative complication based on the procedure is under 1%. So if you're quantitative-minded, you can go to the NSQIP surgical risk calculator. You can put in some patient factors and some procedure factors. You can do this. There's probably a smartphone app as well. Um, Check that out. And if it spits out a risk of under 1%, there's nothing we can do to make that risk lower. So basically, for those patients that are at low risk based on procedural characteristics, it's a cataract, it's an endoscopy, most of the time we'll say go to the OR without further testing because we can't make it better than low risk.
1: Right. Great. And, you know, the other really interesting thing here, uh, actually an old co-resident of mine, Catherine Chen. published in the New England Journal a few years ago, a look at the variance in testing for cataract surgery. And it's amazing. From physician to physician, from ophthalmologist to ophthalmologist, some are ordering a whole panoply of tests, some are ordering none. And it turns out none of those tests matter because a cataract surgery is so low risk, as you say, that you wouldn't actually do anything uh, differently. You don't need the testing because it doesn't really matter uh, what the patient's urinalysis shows or what their CMP is. They don't need the testing. That's such a low risk surgery.
2: Yeah. And we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit subsequently, but I think the spirit of that point is really important. Um, And uh, it's really a, a point of clinical reasoning. That is to say that Um, you know, we'll order tests if we're going to act on the results, right? And if the results aren't going to impact management, it becomes very challenging to know what to do with those sorts of results. So yes, if you're going for cataract surgery or if you have low credit risk, remember, you've already ruled out it's urgent. You've already ruled out that they're unstable based on one and two. Most of those patients can go without further testing.
1: Right. Great. All right. So we've now said that we have looked at the risk of the procedure. If it's really low risk, then we're, that's it. We're just going to go. All right. Let's say that it's intermediate risk or higher risk surgery. What's next?
2: Yeah. And that's good. So, so we talked about what the risk procedures are. The intermediate risk procedures we tend to think of as most of what um, is intraperitoneal and intrathoracic surgery, um, lobectomy, colon surgery, that sort of thing. I, I think most guidelines would put um, uh, laparoscopy in there because there's always a risk of converting to open and it's still intraperitoneal surgery. Um, And then we put CEA, or carotid endarterectomy, as an intermediate risk surgery as well. But then most other vascular surgery, um, AAA or uh, peripheral bypass surgery, is um, considered high-risk surgery. So if you're intermediate or high-risk procedure, um, the next thing that I like to look at is the functional capacity. Because if your patient is very fit and has a high functional capacity, um, there's not a lot we're going to be able to do to make them healthier. They're pretty healthy, and they're most likely going to do great. Great. So in studies, the magic cut point is about four METs or metabolic equivalents. So one MET is you when you're sleeping, um, you're completely at rest, and the only thing your body's doing is expending energy to keep the furnaces on, right? Um, 10 to 12 METs is like uh, singles tennis uh, or running or playing badminton or something like that. Um, You know, just the U.S. Open just concluded, right? So if you were a a singles tennis player, um, that's a high level of activity, 10 to 12 METs. And the magic cup point is about four METs. So if your patient can do four METs of exercise comfortably, um, they're most likely gonna do fine with their surgery. Four METs is walking up two flights of stairs without stopping. Um, it's uh, walking four city blocks briskly without stopping. Um, or if you do happen to have a stress test, We always report on our stress tests, if the stressor was exercise, how many METs they did. So you can actually look up on the stress test to see how many METs they did. And if they did more than four METs, um, their chances of a perioperative event are low. So if the functional capacity is good, if they can walk up two flights of stairs without stopping, walk briskly over four city blocks, or if they did four METs on the treadmill, um, the risk of complications around surgery is low. um, And those patients can generally go without further testing.
1: Right and Tom, let me ask you, is the idea that the stress of surgery we think is somewhat equivalent to the stress of doing those four METs on the stairs, yeah, for example I
2: think that's right I think colloquially people will say that the, the you know if everything goes smoothly and the stress of you know the stress of an uncomplicated uh, general anesthetic is 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 about commensurate with that level of cardiac work now that implies well, what if this is a big um, you know, debulking for ovarian carcinoma, or I'm gonna expect a lot of fluid shifts, or there's something else. Well I think in that case you might worry a little more, right? So those are those patient specific cases where you're gonna say, Oh, the the cardiac work associated with this procedure, it's not four minutes, it's maybe more. So you can always use your clinical judgment, and in fact I think that's Really encouraged, right? You should use your clinical judgment. But I think generally for most uncomplicated uh, garden variety stuff, that format threshold is really the magic number.
1: Right, that's great. And I think that, you know, when we think about where does this work come from in the operating room, I think it can come from one of two places. Obviously, if you're climbing up the steps, the work is coming from the, your heart rate's going up and your heart, your contractility is increasing to, to provide cardiac output to your body in the operating room, I think it can come from one of two places. It can be the same thing. You can get tachycardic either from pain or from stimulation. You can also have the same amount of cardiac work, but less oxygen getting to the heart because you're hypotensive because of the anesthetic agents or because of blood loss. And so you are doing the same amount of work on less energy, so to speak. Either way, you're kind of stressing the heart from one end or the other. And so I think that's why we need to make sure that a patient can tolerate that stress.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: All right. So we've looked at a patient and let's say they, we've gone through this algorithm up to this point, they're having an intermediate or a high risk surgery. They don't have an, uh, it's not urgent or emergent. They don't have an active cardiac um, problem, uh, an active cardiac um, condition. Then we've looked and said, do they have four METs? If we say, yes, they can do four METs or more, then we're good to go. Mm -hmm. What if they can't? Now, and that could be either they have to stop on their way up those two steps or it could be somebody with two bad knees and they can't walk even mm-hmm. though their heart might be fine. But they yeah. we don't know because we can't do yeah. the test.
2: I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to highlight that too, that it's it's not it's yes or no or unknown, right? right. Because patients are bedbound or they need a knee replacement or whatever. So right. absolutely right. Yes, no or unknown. So if you don't know the functional capacity or you know the functional capacity is poor, then you should have reached the, the bottom of the the algorithm so to speak, if you like uh, following it through. And what you're going to look at here is you're going, to, you're going to look at the patient-specific risk. You can count what's called the Revised Clinical Risk Index, or RCRI. Um, and these are looking at patient-related risk factors that are going to influence risk of a bad thing happening. Um, and you're also going to ask yourself, will further testing impact decision-making, right? So let's take those one at a time. So if I get all the way to the bottom of the algorithm, you can use what's called the revised clinical risk index, where you count patient-specific risk factors, right? So there are some things that make people more or less likely to have bad things happen to them, right? And um, the guidelines say that there are a couple. So number one is a history of coronary disease. Um, Either they found it on a cath, they've had prior PCI, they've had an MI, they've had Q waves on the ECG. That gets you one risk factor, Um, Another thing is a history of heart failure. So they have a bad EF, they've been hospitalized with heart failure, that sort of thing. The second one is diabetes requiring insulin. Gets you a point, so you have to be on insulin. The next one is um, a history of chronic kidney disease with a baseline creatinine over two. Okay? And then the final one is a history of a stroke or a TIA. So those are kind of five patient-related risk factors. If you have zero or one of those things, you're generally low risk. And most people who have zero or one of those factors don't need further cardiac testing. If you have two or more of those things, people would say high risk. And what the guidelines say is that you can consider testing if it would affect your management. So we'll come back to that little proviso in a second. And then if it's kind of one or two, then it's kind of in the middle, and you kind of have to use your judgment, is basically the spirit of it. But if you have very few of those risk factors, you can usually go to the operating room. If you have more than a few, you have to consider testing. And you would consider testing if it would influence your management. Let me give you an example. Um, you say, Yes, I'm going to stress this patient. He has risk factors. Um, I want to get a more granular perspective of the cardiac risk. So you stress the patient. The stress test is positive. You count the patient the patient has LED disease. You PCI the patient. Now they have a fresh stent in their LED. And now you, you wait, right? Because you don't want to operate with a fresh stent in place. So you're mandated to wait the requisite time. You know, maybe we'll talk about dual antiplatelet therapy. We could do a whole hour on that. But you're mandated to wait until that's stabilized before you can proceed with surgery. So you can see how pretty quickly you can go down the rabbit hole uh, of testing. Now, that's not to say. You should avoid testing. You should test um, if you think it'll influence your management.
1: But if you're but, not willing to wait, then I, so let's just very briefly say, let's say you put a bare metal stent in. A, a um, drug eluting stent is going to be a much longer wait. Mm-hmm. So a bare metal stent, I think four to six weeks is what we say at least.
2: Yeah. So for if you have a bare metal stent in place, um, you know the guidelines say you need to be on dual antiplatelet therapy for a month, and then you can come off and be on single uh, antiplatelet therapy alone. Um, if you had just balloon angioplasty, really two weeks. And then if you had a drug-eluting stent, it's somewhere between six or 12 months. And you, are getting the flavor that all of these things really ideally are discussed both in advance with the patient. So if I'm sending a patient for angiography before surgery, I say, Mr. Jones, you know, we're going to do this uh, test. If we find coronary disease and if the guidelines would suggest we should do revascularization, we're going to have to wait on that hip so that the patient understands, right? Um, I like communication to remain open with the surgical team. So they, hey, you know, um, uh, Doctor, uh, you know, Doctor A, I'm happy to see this patient for for evaluation. Um, if we end up revascularizing them, it's going to delay the hip, right? So everyone's on the same page, right? So there's no surprises, right? And um, I think
1: the other you mentioned earlier, the cancer example, which isn't emergent. But you also don't want to wait too long. So you wouldn't, for example, put a drug-eluting stent in someone with a colon mass and have to wait 6 to 12 months before you take it out. Yeah,
2: absolutely. You know, I I think that can be very problematic, and maybe you guys have seen those situations in clinical practice. Um, This works best, and we'll kind of echo this theme, with like multidisciplinary open lines of communication, right? So, um, you know, if I'm the cardiologist, I'm seeing this patient, oh boy, colon mass referred because they have unstable angina or whatever, I'm going to do an angiogram, Um, I need to know. Ideally, I've even spoken to the surgical team about, hey, if we find critical CAD and we want to revascularize it, if it's surgical disease, do we go to cabbage? If not, do we do bare metal stent and they can get their colon out? It's a multidisciplinary discussion. So I think um, those are really, really tough cases. And the patient benefits from clear lines of communication among all the teams.
1: Yep, absolutely. All right. So we've done our RCRI If a patient has zero or one risk factor, they're probably okay to go ahead. If they have two or more, then we really need to think about further testing. So let me ask you, uh, and of course, only if that testing will change management, as you said. So let me ask you about, uh, when we say further testing, um, we're usually starting with a stress test. Mm -hmm. And there are different types of stress tests. There's an exercise treadmill stress test. There are stress echoes. Mm -hmm. There are dobutamine stress tests. Um, and others. So, tell me a little bit about yeah. how, how do we know which one our patient needs?
2: Yeah, it's it's a great topic, and, and indeed, one could spend uh, you know hours talking about the different stress modalities. I think the idea is that you want to do some provo. So, if you've made it to that point, you and you want to do some provocative test to see if there's ischemia. Um, You can choose any number of things. I think, you know, there's guidelines on stress testing. What um, I think practically what most people are going to be doing is they're going to be doing some sort of stress test with imaging. So you choose the stressor and you choose the imaging modality, right? So the stressor, something to stress the myocardium, can be exercise or pharmacologic. Um, Generally, my approach is if someone can exercise, they should exercise because we talked about the importance of functional capacity. So if someone can exercise on the treadmill, um, even if you're going to also use an adjunct imaging modality like ECHO or or NUKE, um, you get a lot of information about their functional capacity. So I think if they can exercise, they should. If they can't, um, then they're going to do pharmacologic stress. The choice of pharmacologic stress usually depends on your imaging modality. So if you're going to do a pharmacologic stress with a nuclear imaging, um, that's usually something like, um, uh, like a Persantine study or a, a nuclear uh, imaging modality. You can also do a stress echo with dibutamine, where you use dibutamine to increase heart rate and contractility and, and get an echo um, to assess for wall motion abnormalities. Um, they're roughly comparable Um, generally the nuclear imaging modalities have a hair more sensitivity, whereas the, the stress echo modalities have a hair more specificity. Um, but I think to a first order approximation, um, um, you know, they could be considered approximately equivalent. Um, and I think there's some center specific, um, considerations in terms of what you use access to a stress echo lab, access to a nuke imaging lab, these sorts of things, um, you know, sometimes you'll see patients getting only ECG exercise, um, which is certainly reasonable. I think the, that tends to be quite specific. So if you see a positive uh, exercise ECG, you can feel good about it. Um, it's not as sensitive as adding an imaging modality. And again, you can, you can choose. Um, we could talk for, for probably a long time about choice of imaging modality, but I think most of you are going to be thinking about uh, either a stress echo or a nuclear study um, and the stressor will depend on whether the patient can exercise or not.
1: Right. And I think uh, you and I may have even uh, interacted over a case of a patient who I think had initially been ordered for a, a exercise stress echo, but then there was an issue with, I think, that patient maybe not being stable enough for that.
2: Yeah, there was, there was an interesting case. We could do a whole kind of just case conference based on that patient. Actually, that would be a really interesting case to discuss. This patient had a pheochromocytoma um, and maybe wasn't adequately... Um, uh, beta blocked or adequately um, uh, sympathetically blocked before surgery. They had uh, quite a bit of hypertension, uh, quite a lot of tachycardia, and the question was, you know, can we can we exercise that patient? And you know, I think that. Pheo is a rare tumor, and that's a rare circumstance. The theoretical risk of like exacerbating a Pheo crisis on the treadmill, that sort of thing. So, there are, I think, the spirit of it, some patient specific things that would push you towards one test uh, or the other. Um, And I think, you know, the the friendly neighborhood cardiologist in your stress lab, if you ring them up, can certainly help you. This is what they do all day long is, is decide. So, if there's any question, Uh, a quick phone call to the stress lab can help resolve, you know, what's the best test. And I think what you would say is, hey, this is a patient for pre-op cardiovascular evaluation. I want to do a stress test. Here's a bit about the patient. What's the best stress modality?
1: Right. And I think that was, you know, a great point is that when you're getting ready, if you're working in a pre-op clinic and you're getting ready to order a stress test on a patient because that's where you've ended in your algorithm, it's probably worth a call to the cardiologist to say, here's the situation and, you know, which, which modality should I order? Yep. Great. All right. So we talked about um, the, you know, kind of does testing help? It helps if you uh, think you would go ahead and do the intervention. And so you have to ask yourself that. And and also, of course, ask the patient, are you willing to wait two, four, six, eight weeks or more, uh, depending on what is what result happens from this? All right, and then you had mentioned earlier, uh, Tom, that transplant patients are an exception. Mm-hmm. Um, and just say a word about why. Yeah,
2: so so uh, for those of you who have practices where you're doing solid organ transplants, um, you know, liver, lung, kidney, um, you should know that there is a separate set of guidelines for cardiovascular evaluation of the transplant patient. Um, And that's for a couple reasons. Um, I think the disease processes that lead to need for solid organ transplant are a bit different than the garden variety things you're seeing before most non-cardiac surgery. Um, The tests for coronary disease also have different sensitivity and specificity in that patient population. Um, And then finally, we have very little um, kind of high-quality prospective data about perioperative risk in those patients. But they're thought to be at higher risk than the general patient population for, for a lot of reasons. Um, they're sicker, big fluid shifts, um, oftentimes their baseline disease is more advanced by the time they're coming to the OR, so higher risk of bad things happening to them. And you know what I find in my clinical practice is that there's a lot of center-specific variability in how the transplant programs prefer their patients to be evaluated before transplant. Um, everything from everyone gets a dobutamine stress echo to everyone gets cathed to everything in between. Mm-hmm. And so I think the short story is that there. Um, you can check out the guidelines for that patient population. The underlying diseases are a bit different. And then there's a lot of center-specific practice that one should be aware of um, that certainly is informed by data, but you'll see if you go to different practice settings, some variability. So I think We should be cognizant of the fact that this discussion is relevant to non-cardiac, non-solid organ transplant surgery, and uh, we'll have a proviso for the transplant gang. That's sort of a separate set of circumstances.
1: Yep, absolutely. Okay, I think that's really important. Let me ask you about ECGs. So when you were talking about your own practice, so you're called as the cardiology consultant to give clearance for a patient, you're going to do a history and physical and get an Mm. ECG. Do, you, do all patients uh, need an ECG? In other words, if a patient is coming to the preoperative clinic, they're seeing an anesthesiologist a week before their um, surgery, uh, do you think that they have to have an ECG or does it depend?
2: Oh, yeah. This is good. So there, there, I, I'm aware of a series of sort of um, editorials and choosing wisely and all these sorts of things that, that look at the value of routine testing before uncomplicated cardiac surgery, Um, And this this includes a routine electrocardiogram. I believe it also includes a chest X-ray, a CBC, the basic labs, quote, unquote, all of those things. And so, um, you know, I think my perspective, my clinical practice has a fair bit of what I would call selection bias in that by the time a cardiologist is getting involved, I think most of the time the low-risk guys have gotten screened out. So I don't have a strong sense of the... Um, data around a routine ECG for everyone coming to the operating room. My best guess, based on what I know of other sort of choosing wisely literature, is that it's probably not needed in every patient like before a cataract, right? Or someone you're not worried about, or someone who has a reassuring history in physical. Um, I don't know the primary data well, but that's my best guess. Um, and, And maybe you can enlighten me more. But what I'm thinking about when I'm seeing these guys is that remember that a lot of those things in the unstable cardiac conditions box were uncontrolled arrhythmia, unstable bradycardia, um, acute coronary syndrome, prior Q waves on the ECG, all of those things that are going to impact that kind of stepwise process I put through. So I think by the time a cardiologist is seeing them, most of them will get an ECG under the auspices of completing that evaluation that we just delineated. My hunch is in all comers coming to the perioperative cardiovascular clinic, you know, a 21-year-old before a, a ACL repair, um, I would be really amazed to see data that a perioperative ECG routinely improves outcome in that circumstance.
1: Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. From, from my read of the literature, it does not. Uh, and so I think our practice here is that uh, any otherwise healthy patient under the age of 50 coming for a relatively low-risk surgery does not need an EKG. But Mm -hmm. I think you're right. We certainly aren't calling you to see those patients. So by the time we're calling the cardiologist to see a patient or the surgeon is asking them to see a cardiologist, it's because they have something else going on that's already taken them out of that category. So, uh, But I think certainly anyone out there listening, you should find out what your institution protocol calls for uh, when you're deciding whether to order an EKG or not uh, for a patient coming to surgery. And I do think if, if unclear or if they're borderline you probably could get the ECG. It's a relatively low cost, low risk test. And you are going to then at least have a comparison to use if you end up having an, something happen and need to compare to their pre, pre-op pre baseline. Yeah.
2: And I would I would assume that all of the literature around the value of perioperative uh, testing as risk are assumes patients asymptomatic, feeling great, And has a reassuring history, physical exam, uh, and normal heart rate, right? So if they're symptomatic or they're bradycardic or tachycardic or have an irregular heart rhythm or you hear a murmur, then they're not in that symptomatic box. Then you're doing evaluation, not routine perioperative testing.
1: Absolutely. So let's just look at one uh, other thing here. So patients sometimes come to us on beta blockers or they are not on a beta blocker, but you may see them, evaluate them, go through this algorithm and think, gee... This sort of seems like a patient who should be on a beta blocker. So again, I'm sure we could talk for a long time about this, but give me the overview of how you would recommend we handle beta blockade.
2: So this is such a great topic. And I'm going to actually, um, in what I assume are our last few minutes, expand that into two quick kind of um, maybe themes or things to talk about or considerations for further learning, maybe a future podcast episode. Who knows? Um, So I think that we've gotten right all the way down to the bottom of the algorithm. And now we're going to do a test. And we're going to do treatment based on that test, right? So you're going to do your stress test in your high-risk patient. You're going to find coronary disease. And then you're going to want to do something to treat that, right? So we started this whole discussion by saying we want to identify the high-risk patient. We've done that. Now, do we have anything to mitigate that risk? So the two things we'll kind of focus on as our time comes to a close is the beta blockers, which you alluded to, which is a really, really important topic in perioperative medicine. And then let's also talk about revascularization, right? Yeah. If you find CAD on the stress test, are you going to do PCI? Are you going to do cabbage, right? So the beta blocker story is really, really interesting. And if you follow the perioperative literature, you'll see that there were a bunch of trials that showed that beta blockers reduced events around the time of non-cardiac surgery, certainly in high-risk patients. And then you might have caught wind of the fact that there was some um, concern that some of that data was fraudulent for various reasons coming uh, in a few of the different trials. Some of the pivotal trials were not uh, found to be um, kind of consistent with best research practices. There was some concern around them. Um, so that really put the field back to, to ground zero about what do we do with paraemptive beta blockade. Um, an important trial that came out was the so-called the POISE trial which randomized patients before non-cardiac surgery to beta blockers versus placebo. These were beta blocker naive patients. The beta blocker group had higher risk of perioperative stroke, higher risk of death, lower risk of perioperative MI, um, but higher risk of adverse outcomes. Now, you should know that in the POISE trial, the dosing in beta blocker naive patients was two to 400 milligrams of extended release metoprolol at the time of surgery in a beta blocker naive patient. So people have said, okay, well, that's not a to say perioperative beta blockade is bad. That's to say that dosing regimen was bad. Suffice to say, it's controversial. You see a lot of different interpretations of poise. A subsequent trial was the decrease-4 trial, which looked at um, beta blockers started 30 days before surgery, titrated to a heart rate of 55 to 70, um, and then patients went to surgery. So if you start it well in advance, that actually reduced events. And then there were a few high-quality observational studies that showed that in the highest-risk group, the RCRI 3 and 4 group, those patients had benefits of beta blockers, but not in the risk group. So it's led um, to this sort of question about what beta blockers should be used around the time of surgery, if so, how much and when. Um, so the short story is it's controversial. What the guidelines say is that if you're on a beta blocker for another reason, it should be continued to avoid beta blocker withdrawal. If you have another reason to be on a beta blocker, heart failure, CAD, something else, right? Those are guideline indicated reasons to be on it anyway. It should be started and continued through the perioperative period. If you're going to start it for perioperative risk reduction, which again is uncertain, level of evidence 2A and 2B, um, it should be started well in advance of surgery. Certainly more than seven days, the longer the better, and titrated gradually. Um, Beta blockers probably should not be started on the day of surgery based on the POIS trial. So that's the beta blocker story, and more to come. I think this will evolve in the rec- in the near future in your all-clinical practices.
1: I'll just thank you. That's great. I would just add that the one thing that comes up sometimes and that people may wonder about is you've got a patient, they're not on a beta blocker, they're in the operating room, and they're tachycardic. You know, is it okay to give them some esmalol or some labetalol? And I think we certainly don't know the answer. No one's done that trial. But I think that, uh, and I'll, I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Tom, but my, my take on that is it's fine. We're not giving 400 milligrams of metoprolol, giving five of labetalol or giving, uh, you know, 10 or 20 milligrams of esmolol um, is probably safe as long as you're, as of course we are in the operating room, monitoring their uh, vitals at all times.
2: Yeah. So it's, it's such a great, uh, it's such a great point. My um, the most feared arrhythmia in clinical medicine for me is sinus tachycardia, right? I mean, I don't VT, I know how to treat VT, I know how to treat AFib. but if you have sinus tachycardia, that's frightening to me because it could be from any number of things. So I would would say that if you see sinus tachycardia in the operating room, um, the first thing I would urge everyone to do irrespective of the setting right ICU or whatever is to understand the pathophysiology why are they tachycardic is it volume depletion is it sympathetic stimulus is it because they have impending tamponade right because each of those things is going is going to be managed uh, quite a bit differently so i think when you see sinus tachycardia um, probably the first step is to understand the physiology you're dealing with and you know we have tools to do that right echo and sorts of things so absolutely um, so
1: i couldn't agree more and should have said that first i think the you know where we might see it let's say as a patient who you are waking up at the end of a case and you know they're tachycardic as almost everyone is when they're waking up because they may have a little bit of pain and they're just disoriented they're waking up from anesthesia they're a little tachycardic usually we might not mind if it's somebody who we really would rather they weren't really tachycardic or maybe they're hypertensive and tachycardic and we give some labetalol you know that's a pro- you probably can assume you you know you're going to think it through of course as you just said but you're Probably have your culprit for why they have sinus tachycardia, exactly. um, but yes, absolutely, you don't want to assume this is nothing and just throw beta blockers yeah, at sinus yeah, tachycardia. That's good.
2: Um, so that's great. So then I guess we only have, we're probably at the end of our hour, but I want to the final thing I will bring up is this question of revascularization because yeah, this please. is important. We'll do a whole we can do a whole hour on this, um, but you know you found coronary disease on the stress test, you've, you've done an angiogram, you've, you've seen it. Um, you know, what to do. And I think you'll see patients either in that circumstance or status post recent revascularization, meaning stenting or cabbage, uh, and you'll be working to manage them. Um, an important trial in perioperative medicine um, to know is the CARP trial, which was uh, in New England in 2004. This was coronary artery revascularization before vascular surgery. So these were patients undergoing vascular surgery, FEMPOP bypass, this sort of thing, the highest risk surgery. And they had coronary disease found on the angiogram and remember you've already ruled out that the coronary disease is unstable in step two right so you've already ruled out the mi people and the unstable angina people and these guys were randomized to revascularization with either stenting or bypass surgery versus medical therapy alone and essentially over long-term follow-up there was no difference in outcomes between the two right so the guidelines when you read them will say you shouldn't revascularize a stable cad patient solely for the purpose Of preventing perioperative events. Now, um, subsequent analyses, other analyses have shown that obviously if you have left main disease, you obviously do much, much worse with medical therapy at the time of surgery than revascularization. So what I would say is that um, what you're looking for if you're going to do a perioperative stress test is that critical CAD, right, that unstable kind of massive ischemia that's going to really get you into trouble, left main, multivessel disease, that sort of thing. And what the guidelines say is that if you find CAD on your pre-op angiogram, manage it just as the coronary disease guidelines would say. That is to say, if, you, if you're if you a diabetic with multivessel disease and prox LAD, that's an indication for bypass surgery, whether you're going to the OR for knee replacement or not, right? Similarly, if you have um, like a distal diagonal branch stenosis causing stable angina, ostensibly you could use medical therapy there, right? And so that's obviously the decision that's going to be made in, in – uh, by the cardiologist and with your specialist colleagues and all as a group, but I wanted to let you know the spirit of the guidelines are that if you make it all the way to the cath lab before non-cardiac surgery and you find CAD, you know, use your clinical practice guidelines for coronary disease as the guideline to decide whether to revascularize people or not. We have at least one trial that shows no benefit for routine revascularization prior to non-cardiac surgery. So use your judgment and use your clinical guidelines to, to decide.
1: All right. That's really helpful. Let me ask you, let's say that you, we did have a cancer patient and we didn't want to wait a month, but we were willing to wait a, you know, a short amount of time, a week or two. Would you take someone who could have a stent placed, but instead send them for cabbage because then they wouldn't need the dual answer? Oh yeah,
2: it's a, a good question. So I think that. Um, I think i not seen that done commonly in clinical practice. I think it seems that most surgery stratifies out into can wait a month or has to go super urgently. Like yeah. there's not a lot in between. Um, ostensibly, um, you know, after cabbage, the, there's no clear guidelines on how long to wait. Um, most people would say wait four to six weeks before non-cardiac surgery after surgical revascularization. Um, so it probably doesn't buy you... A lot of time. Mm-hmm. You just need to recover from a major cardiac operation. Yep. You have a lot of other things going on. So I, I don't think cabbage would buy you a lot of time per se, and I'd still use the anatomic substrate as the, as the big, uh, decision. So I think that, um, you know, sometimes we get asked about, can you do balloon angioplasty, not, pl- not leave a stent, just do balloon angioplasty, um, you know, get two weeks of dual antiplatelet therapy and then come off and, and I guess you could, I think again, practically we don't do that very often. Um, there's, Kind of theoretical risk and, and actual risk of acute vessel occlusion, restenosis, that sort of thing. But I think in these gray zone cases, um, we certainly don't have a lot of data, and it's all judgment. And again, judgment based on the urgency of the procedure, or the you know how fast you need to proceed, what the anesthetic plan is, and what the coronary substrate is. Um, you know, and again, I think remember that. I mean, you guys won't be the ones doing the coronary angiogram, but we all should remind ourselves that unless you're really having an acute MI, um, if the patient's stable, you know, it's better to. Define the anatomy, take them off the table, and then convene the brain trust and discuss right. as a group what needs to be done. That is, unless you're really in an emergent situation, you, you have time to make a phone call and figure this stuff out.
1: Absolutely. So let's say, uh, Tom, and this is probably the last thing I'll ask you, that you're taking a patient to the operating room because they, it is urgent. All right? Now, they may have cardiac disease, but it's an urgent or emerging case. So obviously, then you're going to treat them as if they do have coronary artery disease. Uh, and when I think about that, I think about c- keeping their perfusion pressure up, keeping their heart rate down, uh, and keeping them as stable as can be, keeping their oxygen delivery uh, up, so not letting them get drop their hemoglobin too low, et cetera, uh, keeping their saturation at a reasonable level. Are there other things that you think we should be keeping in
2: mind? Yeah. I mean, I think those are, those are great clinical practice things. I think the the specter of that question is how do you manage like demand ischemia? Yeah. uh, which is such a great topic. And this is another one that's going to evolve over the coming years because people are just now appreciating, um, both the, how common, um, perioperative myocardial injury is, um, that it does connote adverse prognosis, but we really have no idea how to treat it. So people have looked at, for example, just routine aspirin around the time of non cardiac surgery in the in the generic patient, not the stented patient, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and it causes a little more bleeding and doesn't really buy you a whole lot. Um, you know, maybe a role for statins based on some of the vascular surgery literature, um, you know, for patients who otherwise have an indication. Probably the, the one thing that um, I would say is if you're going urgently to the operating room in a patient at high cardiovascular risk, is it might influence not only some of the hemodynamic things you talked about, but your um, your... Kind of management in terms of screening afterwards. So it's controversial about like routine checking of troponins, routine ECGs, routine SC segment monitoring. Again, I think. Um, when you apply a screening test, you're going to find a lot of positives that you don't know what to do with, but for sure, um, if you're worried about an MI and if your patient's intubated and not able to tell you if they're having chest pain, um, you know, it wouldn't be unreasonable to look for trouble if you think it might be there, right? So you're going to look for an echo for the wall motion abnormality, maybe check troponins to see if there's myocardial injuries, certainly watch them on telemetry. Um, so as a theme, you might change how you monitor patients if you're going urgently, but they have known cardiovascular disease.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Fantastic. All right, Tom, anything else you think we should touch on before we go?
2: You know, I I don't. I think that, um, you know, we had a a really terrific discussion, a comprehensive discussion. Um, I would refer you guys to the perioperative guidelines, which have some beautiful um, algorithms and tables that delineate a lot of what we talk about. Um, I would say um, if you're – I have no doubt that, Jed, your listeners are astute, with a capital A, readers of the literature – um, so keep an eye out because there's going to be a lot more trials about beta blockers and dual antiplatelet therapy and type 2 MI. Um, so this is an exciting area. Um, and, and I think the final thing I'll say is that um, this is the essence of team-based patient-centered care. This works best when the anesthesia team, uh, the cardiology and the medicine team, uh, certainly the perioperative nursing team and ICU teams, um, and the surgical team all Collaborate, And the patient's best served when we all um, uh, look out for them. So um, it's really the essence of team-based care is perioperative cardiovascular medicine.
1: Couldn't agree more, Tom. Thanks so much. And listeners, stay tuned. Dr. Metkus is going to be back later this month for more. We're going to talk about best practices around preparation and uh, perioperative care for cabbage patients and uh, there's so many more topics so hopefully I can continue to keep talking and into coming back. Tom, thanks so much All for right. coming look back. I look
2: forward to talking to you guys soon and uh, thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. Alright. That was really fantastic. I hope everyone enjoyed Dr. Meckes' words of wisdom. If you have comments, go to the website at ACRAC.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments that we all can learn from. You can also, of course, reach me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating, even if you've already done it. If it's been a little while, you can do it again. It helps other people find the show when they're looking for an anesthesia podcast. If you would like to support the making of the show, go to patreon.com slash acrac, that's patreo ncom com slash where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two, it makes a big difference, and we greatly appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to those of you who are already patrons on Patreon and to Jason Park for the fantastic outlines that he does on some of the episodes. You can find them in the show notes. They're really helpful, especially if you're using these episodes to study. All right. That is it for today. For Dr. Tom Metkus and the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.